You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. For the past 23 years, a nonprofit theater company called Only Make Believe has been creating and performing live, in person, and virtual interactive theater for children in hospitals, care facilities, and special education programs. It started here in New York City, but has since opened an office in Washington, D.C., with some outreach in other cities as well. And every November, they have an all-star gala on Broadway to raise funds and awareness for the incredible work they do for children across the country. In the next episode, you'll hear an encore presentation of my conversation with founder Dina Hammerstein. But for today, I'm sitting down with one of the board members and the director of that annual gala, who has known Dina and OMB since its inception. My name is Joe DiPietro. I grew up in Oradell, New Jersey, and I currently live in, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I am a playwright. Joe is certainly no stranger to theater and has been writing for the stage since 1991, and his musicals and plays have received multiple awards and nominations on and off Broadway. Namely, Memphis, which won Best Musical back in 2010 and scored Joe two Tony Awards for Best Book and Best Score, along with composer David Bryan. In addition to his connection with Only Make Believe, we'll talk about two of his most recent Broadway shows, Diana the Musical and Living on Love, his lone Broadway play so far. Both had their own challenges coming to and surviving on Broadway. In fact, Diana, in cooperation with Netflix, filmed their stage production during the COVID shutdown. And that movie notoriously went on to win Golden Raspberry Awards for Worst Screenplay and Worst Picture, among others. But Joe takes it all in stride and shares with us not only his passion for theater, but also what has kept him going through all the ups and downs. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm very lucky to have been doing this for a good 25 years now. So I've had every sort of review you could imagine. So the experience helps. I think if I was a young writer and that was like my first thing, I think I would have just, you know, walked into the river. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning Top 25 Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer, talking with fellow creatives each episode of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe to bonus episodes and offer your own financial support to the production of this podcast. 
Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We bumped into each other here and there at various events, but it's nice to finally have you on the podcast. So thank you very much. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. You have been writing musicals and, and plays, actually, for quite a long time. What was it that got you that theater bug? Well, I grew up in Oradell, New Jersey, as your listeners now all know, which is right across the George Washington Bridge. And so my folks, when I was growing up, would take us in to see Broadway shows. And the first show I ever saw was the original production of 1776 oh, with wow. William Daniels and like that cast. And I was very young. But even though I was young, I still like remember when the lights came up on the Continental Congress and that music started and I would, didn't know what I was doing, didn't know what I was watching. And I was just hooked. I was like, I need to, it was just that like euphoric moment of, I need to be a part of this. And I was just a kid. So, um, I just became like a theater fan and my folks would take us to shows. And when I was old enough, I would go to shows and teachers, you know, any opportunity I had in school, I'd go see Broadway shows or local shows or off Broadway shows, whatever I could. And then I also started going to the library and uh, taking out plays and reading plays. And one reason was that because I, I loved it. And B was because I learned early on that you could like read Death of a Salesman and that counts as for a book report or you could read, you know, Tolstoy, like a 600 page novel and it's the same thing. So I'm like, <laughs> right. Plays are much shorter. <laughs> I can polish off Arthur Miller in a day. So I started reading a lot of plays and I and I read a lot of the 1970s um Theater was really on the cutting edge of, of dangerous, edgy topics, you right. know, about gay plays and like there are plays like Equus and, and all sorts of really interesting topics that theater was covering that the rest of the media, I think, was slow to catch up. I think theater always is a little ahead of most other media in, in that respect. So it was a really exciting time. And that's literally how I started. I just from loving it and reading it, never dreaming I would be a professional playwright, but it was taught to me in a way. I was exposed to it. So I'm always a big believer in exposing kids to all sorts of culture because you just never know what hits them. Well, that actually leads us into the first story that we're going to talk about, which is something that's very close to both of us, a nonprofit organization called Only Make Believe. And mm -hmm. its mission is to bring in these kids to theater who are in these unfortunate circumstances, whether they're in hospitals or care facilities. And now you have been with OMB since its beginning in 1999, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Jamie Hammerstein, who was the youngest son of Oscar Hammerstein, happened to be my mentor in this business. And he produced my first two off-Broadway shows, which were I Love You, You're Perfect Now, Change, and a play called Over the River. And they're both very successful. And Jamie and I became friends. And he died very suddenly of a heart attack one night. And it was just devastating. And his wife, Dina Hammerstein, called me up a few months later. She said, you know, I've always been very interested in children's charities because she she had done a lot of work with GMHC, the Gay Men's Health Crisis and their family unit. And she was, I had this wild idea to start this charity called Only Make Believe based on uh, Oscar's song from Showboat, the title, and sort of in tribute to Jamie. And she said, you know, why not bring the shows to the kids who are in hospitals? So I was like, that sounds fantastic. Sign me up. I'll help any way I can. And she had known a couple of friends from hospitals just on her other charities work with children's charities. So she invited, I don't know, there must have been six or seven of us to her living room and said, I have this idea. What do you think? How do we bring the excitement and joy and release of theater to these kids who were really born into really 
tough, tough circumstances mm. and hospitals and, you know, all sorts of issues. And she sort of came up with the idea of, of hiring a professional troops of uh, three actors per troop. And the idea is you basically bring a backdrop in, bring a trunk full of crazy costumes for the actors and the kids. And you do these interactive shows that were original scripts that they would write that would involve the kids. So the idea of only make-believe is the star of the show are the kids. And with the simplest of backdrop, the goofiest of costumes, and just the sort of most fantastical of stories, like these kids were just entranced and it helped them escape. And amazing things over the year have happened. Um, kids who were selectively mute would start speaking during the shows. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, really amazing things. Kids who were being wheeled into their operation would sing the theme song that we wrote. You know, it, and it just sort of grew and grew and grew. And I think the first year we maybe served 40 children. You know, there are kids who um, have major mobility issues. There are kids have um, psychological issues. There's all sorts of kids in theater. As we know, every audience is different. Well, in Only Make Believe, every audience is really different. <laughs> right. And one specific thing about OMB is that it's very interactive. It's not them yes. on a stage. It's them interacting as much as they can with the children and bringing them into the story because they wear costumes just as much as the, the actors yeah. themselves wear it. Yeah. And one of the things about uh, Only Make Believe is we, from the, the get-go, we bring these trunks of costumes. We do, I call them a cycle, six week cycles of these. We call them workshops of these shows they do with the kids. And then they leave the costumes for the kids. And sometimes they make up their own shows and their own kind of thing. So yeah, no, it's very in, in, interactive and they sing and they dance and they play characters and they tell the good guy to watch out for the bad guy who's, you know, <laughs> right. standing behind the curtain and not to get them. Yeah, no. So it's really the basics of theater that we all love really stripped down to its essentials. So it's amazing to see. I think how healing it is and how therapeutic it is and how joyous it is. Cause also one thing about only make believe we, as uh, Dino would always say, which is so true. We have no political or religious affiliation. Every child is welcome. Uh, we never charge the, the it's all self-supported. We never charge families for this. It's all free of charge. And sometimes like the families watch, you know, because when you have a child in a hospital, you know, you have other, you have other siblings. So sometimes whole, you know, families will be enjoying these shows. So it's really, I think, expanded to beyond what we thought its possibility was, which was just, oh, this will be a fun, nice thing an hour a week for kids. And it certainly takes a special kind of actor to be a part of these performances. As you said, you're, you're seeing children who are disabled or bedridden and interacting with them in a theatrical way. So how does OMB find these actors? We audition. We do an audition process like any theatrical show we have literally audition and many have stayed for many years with us some some have moved up into administrative positions in the office so uh yeah so it's really a whole uh, array but essentially i think they post you know an audition notice and people come in now what has been your role on the board itself and how does the board further the work of omb well, the board, uh, you know, basically serves as like any board of a charity organization. We serve as guidance, uh, but probably our biggest responsibility is raising money to keep it going because it is, uh, it's a very lean organization. The money, if you give money to our charity, it goes directly to the kids. We have a small lean office staff. Our overhead is very little. It's just like transportation to and from these things. And as I said, the costumes are free and, you know, the we have a lot of people uh, helping us out in terms of charity things. 
So even though we're a lean and mean organization, we still have to raise money. It's self, as you said, it's self-finance. So every year we raise money. So my biggest job on the board is being in charge of the gala. Every year we do a Broadway gala. It started uh, years ago as an off-Broadway gala when we first started and we held it in the West Side Theater, which were where my show, I Love You, You're Perfect Now Change, was in the midst of a nice, nice long run. And we basically get our super talented theater friends to come and sing or dance or perform for us. And each year that gala has grown and grown and grown to an amazing thing. And we have a, another gala coming up uh, this November. That's my personal main job. I direct it. Um, Brad Oscar has always been very helpful. Uh, a lot of other people too. Yeah. And, and one of your co-writers, David Bryan, who you've worked with on a few shows, has also come and performed and sung songs himself. Oh yeah. David's been great. Absolutely. And I wrote the, we do have the only make believe theme song, which I wrote with Jimmy Roberts, which is with who I wrote, I love you perfect now change. With. Right. Yeah. So we, you know, we did that and he wrote a song that's very call and response that kids can sing. That's very repetitive because we have all sorts of audiences. So repetition is generally good for our audiences. And it's really sort of this fun clap along song. One of my favorite parts of attending the gala are when you bring up some of the kids that you've been able to perform for and how are kids like that chosen? Obviously being on a stage like that is much different than being in the shows and yes. the <laughs> care facilities. <laughs> well, our actors and our office staff get to know the kids. I mean, uh, and some, as I said, are there unfortunately for like extended periods of time. It's not just a, ho a short hospital, say some are there for years, literally. So the kids get to know the actors and the actors get to know the kids. So when we're putting together the gala, first thing, obviously, we have to approach the family and say, is this something you'd be interested in doing? But basically, we sort of like try to pick the kid who we think really would like react well to, you know, because you're on stage. So it's lights and sound and applause and, you know, people running around backstage. So you need someone who you think is going to enjoy that. So I just you try to pick a personality like, like on stage where you just feel like is going to really respond well to this theatrical event and being the star, you know, as we say, the star of the show. And, you know, and they just sort of get the time of their life and they're always fantastic. We've never had a, a, a young man or woman who was anything but like exuberant on stage. Well, I would say that the performers that you get on stage as well have also been so exuberant and people that have loved OMB as well, you know, besides just wanting to help with the gala. Yeah, I mean, we've had over the years, I mean, people have been very, very generous for us. We're very generous with our time. Jennifer Hudson sang one year for us. Right, right. You've had some big stars as well as people hosting it, like this year's John Oliver and, and other people, Jude Law. You've had quite a list of performers. McKellen hosts, Surrey and McKellen right. hosted, who was brilliant. Now, one of those is your Memphis star, Montego Glover, oh my God. who has been to several galas. Uh -huh. What was it like the first time you heard her sing? You must have known this girl is something. Yeah, well, Montego auditioned for my show Memphis for the first production of it, which was at uh, North Shore Music Theater, God, a while ago. And she was, you know, we were all younger and she walked in and we were like, who is this? And, you know, she was unbelievable. And we cast her and then we never looked back. I mean, we had, I think, four out of town productions. That show had a uh, starts and fits like many shows. And um, not only did she sort of grow into the role, but 
I think what happens when you have an actor like that, you start writing the role for them. You get to know them. You, you see them on stage. You know their what their strengths are. You know, and Montego also, uh, I believe, is from Chattanooga, Tennessee. So she grew up right near Memphis. So she was my Southern uh, research <laughs> Your consultant, like, right? <laughs> Montego. So how would you say this line? Uh, and she was sometimes like, no, you know, I can I? He would say this instead of this. I'm like, thank you. So she was great. Yeah, no, she performed our show on Broadway for three years. I mean, she was just fantastic. And what I always tell young actors is I wish you could study Montego's work ethic because she is my definition of a total pro, which is the highest compliment I can give anyone is she comes to rehearsal prepared. She comes inquisitive. She comes with smart questions. She's willing to try anything. She's a total leader. She's part of the group, but she's also knows if she's a star that she's sort of the leader of the pack. So right. she was just, she's just a joy to work with. And I hope I, uh, I think I will work with her again, uh, sooner than later. But yeah. And so she's always come out to only make believe. And she, uh, you know, she's a favorite, like, uh, you know, people in the audience who are, you know, where you got a lot of, um, besides theater people come to see the, these great performers, you get a lot of business people coming and they're like, Oh, I got to go another charity thing. What's the, you know, grouching, grouching, grouching. And then they're like, oh my God, this was like, this was a Broadway show. And you have people like Montego. You're like, who is that? You know, you know, she's fantastic. So we basically, we try to invite Montego every year without um, us taking advantage of our relationship with her. <laughs> yes. But she always comes out. Well, you've had quite a few people from your shows. And, and another one is from your very first Broadway show, All Shook Up, Cheyenne Jackson, who starred in that. But, but from what I understand, he was originally the understudy. He, he wasn't the star yet. Yeah, that was uh, All Shook Up. And that was in the two, early 2000s. And we were casting it. We were going to Chicago for a tryout, but it was already set to come into New York. And Cheyenne came in, must have been in his 20s then, and I think he had done a couple of understudy roles. I don't think he had ever originated a role on Broadway, if memory serves. And he came in for the understudy and he started singing and performing. We were like, oh my God, fantastic. So took the understudy and we had cast someone else for that lead role. And we kept hearing, oh, you know, the deal with this actor isn't done yet. But we were like, and he had won a Tony Award. It was sort of a big deal. And we were like, oh, I'm sure, like, you know, you hear that all the time. Like, you never worry. And then literally one week before we're supposed to start rehearsals in Chicago, we get a call. Chris Ashley, the director, gets a call from our producer saying, hey, so how good is the understudy to playing Chad? This, you know, the Cheyenne guy. <laughs> and then Chris like, oh, well, he's great. He auditioned, you know, like, wh why are you asking? He goes, well, do you think he could handle the role? And it was like, he's like, what? The producers and the other actor had a parting of ways. Very unusual. Very, you know, that late, especially, right? And so Chris calls up to the uh, agents and say, so can Cheyenne come back tomorrow to audition? Because we lost our leading actor for the role itself. Uh, you know, I found out later from Cheyenne, which I assumed he was like, wait, what, 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 what's happening? What's happening? So he spent <laughs> two days relearning all this material. And then he came in and re-auditioned for us. And he, you know, that voice is unbelievable. He certainly fit the tab uh, of the charisma thing. And we were like, well, you know, he's never done this before, you know, originate a role, which is very different than understudying, but he could be great. And <laughs> no choice right now to get someone more experience. So let's let's hand it to him. And all credit to Cheyenne, who was also just super, super pleasure to work with. He did exactly what I always tell actors to do when they ask me for advice. When you get an opportunity is be ready for it. Like he 
I don't know if he took voice lessons or not, but I know he hired an acting coach. He got in super good shape. He did everything you want someone to do who's going to be a leading man on Broadway like that. And he had, you know, he literally had a week to start working. I mean, it was a re- right. ridiculous, you know, you remind me under study, I, I'll, I'll copy the lead and, you know, and I'll go on and I'll be fine. And he really just like upped his game. And he, uh, you know, I saw, I saw him transform himself into a star in a very short period of time. So uh, all credit to him. And then he, you know, helped us out with only make-believe one year too. So yeah, no, he was, he, it was a great just example of, you know, you have to be prepared. You have to get out there. And when opportunity comes, you got to know where it is and you got to really grab it. And he really did. While nonprofits like Only Make Believe certainly focus their efforts on making a difference in the lives of others, they also have to focus on raising money to continuously fund their noble efforts. The OMB Gala is just one part of that fundraising. So to learn more about how you can help, check out onlymakebelieve.org. And even a little podcast like this needs supporters like you to help make it. So a big thank you goes out to Ethan Steimel, Kristen Stoltz-Presley, and Courtney Potts, who support WinMe with either monthly or yearly subscriptions and get access to the bonus episodes, all for as little as $5 a month. Also, I'd like to personally thank Susan Hafner for her recent one-time donation through PayPal. She sent me a message on Instagram saying she, quote, loved both the podcast and Final Five Thank you. I totally agree with Darren Lee's advice and try to do that even as a swing. She went on to say that she was in the 2001 Broadway revival of 42nd Street and that she'll be seeing our production here at Goodspeed. Well, Susan, your donation is greatly appreciated and enjoy the show. These dancers are truly fantastic. Well, if you are enjoying this podcast and the fantastic conversations we have here, well, please consider joining Kristen, Ethan, Courtney, and Susan by offering your own financial support. Go to whyillnevermakeit.com and click either donate or subscribe, because either way, you'll be helping me produce this podcast each and every month. You'll find links to both of those in the show notes as well. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now back to Joe DiPietro as we discuss his recent production of Diana the Musical, and then his lone Broadway play, Living on Love. Well, 
That leads us into story number two, which is your most recent Broadway show, Diana the Musical. And it was originally set to open in 2020, like many shows, but then COVID happened. And so you had to postpone it. Now, most of the shows went away and they were just going to kind of wait till Broadway reopened. But Diana used that time off to do a movie version of the stage production. Now, now how did that all come about with Netflix? Yeah, uh, it wasn't uh, quite a movie version. It was really a pro shot. What would happen was we were literally, I don't know, a week into previews. And if we remember anyone who was working uh, in theater at the COVID time could tell you suddenly audiences were getting smaller. <laughs> there were a lot of ticket returns. And I remember speaking with Chris Ashley and uh, the director and David Bryan. I was like, we were like, you know, and the producers like, you know, what, we're not going to open right now. We all thought it'd be like a month, but we're not going to open right now. So let's work as hard as we can and keep doing what you're doing previews, which is working on the show. And we had great first previews. It was prior to uh, the Diana movie that came out prior to the crown dealing. So we were like, we sort of felt like, oh, we were like ahead of the game here where it was good timing. And then suddenly, you know, the pandemic hit, but we kept working on the show and audiences were loving it. Our producers were very happy. We were selling well, all that kind of stuff. And then boom, and then COVID happened. And when I think everyone realized that this wasn't going to be a two month, three month break, it was going to be maybe years. Our producers, to their credit, got together and said, what are we going to do? And one of our producers was Frank Marshall, who is a Steven Spielberg's producer, big, big Hollywood guy. And really good guy, really loves theater and was a big supporter of the show and said, you know, he said, we've got these costumes. We got the set. The show was just about ready. <laughs> we got the actors or no one's working, you know? Right. So I'm going to call some friends around Hollywood and see if anyone wants to come in and do a pro shot of our show. And the one caveat is we couldn't have an audience because of COVID because you just, you know, you couldn't. So amazingly like within two months netflix had you know read the strips uh listened to the music and said yes we're gonna do it and suddenly we were se- sequestered in a hotel in new jersey <laughs> like, like <laughs> you know we had to spend three days it was before vaccines and you know so it was really time and we had to go back in rehearsal because people hadn't done the show in months and we kept working on the show we kept like i said what we have what we have done in previews And suddenly we got this chance to shoot it for Netflix in the middle of the pandemic when no one was working. (laughs) And so everyone was, so it was a really unique, fun time. And everyone was always worried that the two or three people would get COVID somehow. And then they would shut the whole, these were before vaccines. So this was a while ago, right? That they would shut the whole thing down. So that's really how it happened. It was really a producer and producing and Netflix like liking everything and us. <laughs> and, and then we were, I think we shot for a week and they literally ripped the seats out of the Long Acre Theater one day. There was no- oh, To make room for the cameras and everything they that they need crane. to do. Yeah. If you look at that, that pro shot, they had a crane. Yeah, it was quite beautiful. Yeah. I remember also thinking at the time, oh, you know, who knows when? I mean, I'm, I'm an optimist. So I thought for always got to reopen at some time. But who knows when, who knows if we will, who knows what, what the landscape will be. So we're actually, we have this unbelievable produced show for pos- posterity. And with that in mind, obviously a show on Broadway, as the preview process is, you continue to tweak and edit, but once you put it on film, then it's kind of done and that's, that's, that, that. that's the yeah. version. And so your goal was to get it to this finished version that you could be happy with, right? Yes, absolutely. And we still did some work on it. I mean, we did, when we came back, there were still some things we wanted to do. And because we didn't have an audience, it's a trickier thing. So we cut out some things and we 
we did some like rewrite just for the, the TV version of it. But we just thought, hey, we're just filming this. Aren't we lucky? Uh, we're getting paid and it looks great. Right. For any artist to be working oh, at that it was time. Unbelie- was a, was it gift. was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And everyone came back. No, it was really fun. It was, it was a, it was a fun, wild time. Yeah. Yeah. You forget about, you forget how long people weren't working. I mean, you know. Yeah. It was a solid year and a half before Broadway came back. Yeah. And so the movie released in October of 2021. And unfortunately, it garnered pretty negative reviews across the board. So how do you personally handle rough critiques and bad reviews like that? Well, it's funny. When, when I heard about Netflix, the first thing I thought, not the first thing I thought, I was like, oh my God, that's fantastic. Like there was never any like, but the two things I thought was, oh, how is this show going to play without an audience? Because what happened was from the get-go, when we were prior to the shutting down of the pandemic, uh, and then when we came back, the audience reaction from day one was crazy good. Like people just had a great time at that show. And I thought like, so I thought like, oh, without an audience, are they going to think that this is supposed to be like a masterpiece theater thing, which would be weird. And I said, this producer, I'm like, you know, the one dangerous thing about this is, is that TV critics are going to meet this show before theater critics see it live. And it's a different experience because it's, there's no, we're literally shooting this on a stage and it's an audience and we're musicalizing Diana and Charles. So there are going to be some TV critics who just don't like musicals and think like, this is not what things should be. And da, 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 da. So I sort of was, I was thinking like, okay, but maybe no matter what, Netflix is great. It's going to be there forever. Millions of people will see it. So that's a good thing. Um, and I was really happy with that. I was really, I thought Chris, Chris's uh, shot of it was great. Uh, and then we'll go back in the theater and then we can sort of get live audiences again and type of thing. But I think that what happened was when the critics sort of came after it, especially the television critics, it just put, you know, they have a hive mind and it suddenly becomes a show that they can sort of slam. And I thought, oh, now what are theater critics going to say? And I I was actually really worried because it was going so well prior to the the COVID shutdown. I was like, oh, what happens when we come back to uh, the theater? And uh, are people going to laugh at this? Are people going to walk out? Is anyone going to come? And then the first night at the theater, like people go nuts for it more than ever. And then the theater critics slammed it. And then it was just, we just couldn't keep it going with, with, with sort of that. Do you think they were just kind of feeding off of those movie and TV I critics? I think a lot of them didn't see what was in front of their eyes. Yeah, I do. And I mm-hmm. think because, our, you know, and, you know, I'm a big rewriter in previews and things. And I can rewrite what is happening in the, in the audience. I can't rewrite what other you know, something that's invisible, what critics are going to think. So I do think, and even our critics' performances, I was like, this is a real, I got, cause I've had some critics' performances where the audience gets unnaturally quiet, right? And, but this, the first performances were great. And then I think it started finding this inter, you know, it's clearly started finding this internet cult thing. And unfortunately, we didn't have enough time to build that. And then I guess like two or three months ago, I was going on vacation uh, and we're, uh, me and my boyfriend were driving up to Provincetown and, and he goes, oh, she must be very happy today starting vacation like this. And I was literally like, what, wait, what happened? Like, I was like just in the car with him for two hours. And he goes, oh, I'm getting all these texts about the great New York Times review, Diana. Just got. I was like, what? And there was like a whole reassessment of it by a young critic in the mm-hmm. Times. And when would we go up in August, I guess. So yeah, so it's been an interesting ride, that show, I have to say. Like, I really love it. I sort of miss it. I miss, I think that crowd was fantastic. You know, the cast was fantastic. But uh, stock and amateur rights are being sold. So we're going to announce that soon. I think there might be a couple events coming up with that show. 
And I think, you know, I love that cast. And uh, sometimes when you have a show that doesn't run like you hope it does, everyone hates each other, right? Like you get a lot of infights and we like had the opposite. Like we all, the producers, everyone was like, we love what we're doing. You know, people we know and trust love what we're doing. So I think it was what I would say, whenever you become a show that's not cool, it's a hard battle. And I think we're somehow that show is over its hump and it's becoming cool in a cult way. It'll, I, I think it's going to have some more life, but um, yeah, but I think about one of the things, uh, getting back to your question is I'm very lucky to have been doing this for a good 25 years now. So I've had, you know, every sort of review you could imagine. So the experience helps. I think if I was a young writer and that was like my first thing, I think I would have just, you know. Walked into the river. Yes, it probably would have devastated you. Yeah, yeah. And I and I know people who've had a show and it's a big show and it doesn't go like they hope and they just essentially leave. You know, they essentially go to LA or they essentially do something else. Because you've written a lot of great musicals from your off-Broadway shows like I Love You, You're Perfect to hits like Memphis. So what was it that initially drew you to a musical about Diana? And then what do you still like about the musical or are most proud of? Uh, I was reading about her. And, you know, she I, she, I would sort of be the same if she was alive, I would have been the same age of her. And I was never that interested in British royalty, but Diana was always fascinating, right? Because she was different and she was the rebel. And then I, I read a lot of biographies and histories and I happened to just pick up a book about her one day and I start reading about her. And I was like, she was sort of, am-, and I didn't know this, like she was sort of amazing. Like it was a marriage that was set up to fail. She didn't know it. And she really came through it in her own way. And I always felt that the press, which was very monarchy aligned and anyone who's interested in maintaining the patriarchy, which are a lot of very powerful people, really had it in against her. And she really was sort of alone in the world. And she loved someone who didn't love her back. I mean, she had the fairy tale. That was a lie, which is I'm like, this is a great metaphor for, you know, any fact we always think love is going to be this. And she had, she had it when every, at least in my generation, girls were taught you marry the prince, right? And so there's still girls who dream of that. So she had that and it was just a nightmare. And I thought, I can't believe no one's ever done this as uh, like a big Broadway musical. And so I, and I thought like, this is, she's stuck in the eighties and I'm an eighties baby. That's, you know, that was all my music. And so I called David, who was, you know, in Bon Jovi, who came of, uh, you know, one of the big bands of the eighties. And I said, Let's write a wild rock opera, a 80s opera about the circus that was her life. I, to me, it was always a black comedy. So that's what we did about it. You know, and I actually it was one of the few shows I've written where I could watch it night after night. And I was always happy to be there. I was always that audience was always fun and great. Performances were great. And I always sort of got sucked up in it. At this point, looking back at it, are there things that you would change about it or the things that you would retweak in order for it to be received better by some audiences and critics? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, if, if I had my druthers, I would have had insisted that somehow we do it for a live audience and for Netflix. I think that audience reaction to the, that this is a fun show would have been really uh, much stronger. Certainly, you know, if I had a magic wand, I would do that. Uh, and I don't know, maybe like, I, there's parts of it that are campy. Maybe we, 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 we were having so much fun and audiences were loving it. We, we turned up the camp too much, but quibble, but I really like it. So I, you know, there's almost every show I've done. There are things of I, after putting it away and moving away, I would go back, but I'm not a big reader of reviews or belief that a writer should read reviews. I think they can be dangerous to get in your head. 
So I, I don't really quite know like what they would say about it, but I would be shocked if there was really constructive criticism in it. But we sort of did the show that we wanted to do that our producers were like so supportive of and that much of our audience just loved and sort of still loved. So in that sense, you know, and I, I also try to look at my, um, having done this for a long time now as my career as, as a body of work, you know, and there are things I've written that have been very successful. I'm like, oh, that's okay. And things that not so. And I'm like, oh, I really like, I think there's really good stuff in there. So I try to look at it as a continuum. And I wish, especially for the cast, that that show had run longer. But it just maybe it suddenly starts turning up on my Netflix, most popular Netflix shows. Uh, again, I think probably because the queen died. So it's going to be around. <laughs> right. Then people want to on. know. Yeah. 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 So it lives on. And as I said, I think it'll, it'll rise. And if that looks true, that'll be a, a lot of fun. Well, for story number three, another one of your shows that was on Broadway, which was actually your first play, your one and only play to be on Broadway, Living on Love. Now, it opened in 2015 and starred another former guest of this podcast, Douglas Sills. And I think it's safe to say that you're mostly known for your musicals. However, you have really written just as many plays as you have musicals. What is it about this particular play that put it on the path to Broadway that your other plays haven't? Oh, uh, I think Chris, I had a big star in it because Renee Fleming was, uh, you know, the great opera singer. Uh, you know, some plays, most of my plays, especially straight plays I've written, I have an idea for and I write it and give it to a theater or a producer or someone and, and, and they do it. So this was a play that I was approached to. Um, it was uh, in the fall of three years back now. And uh, the director, Kathleen Marshall, and her husband, producer, Scott Landis, who I had done nice work, you can get it, uh, with uh, Matthew Broderick with, had called me up and said, hi, so we have, this is absolutely true, which is so wild. They said, you know, Renee Fleming? And I was like, oh, yeah, of course. The opera, I'm not a huge opera fan, but I know who she is. And they said, oh, well, so we've uh, optioned a play by Garson Kanan, who wrote Forn Yesterday, great director um, of the 40s and 50s. And, uh, it was not a success, but it's about an opera singer. And, uh, Renee Fleming has agreed to do it and we've programmed it into Williamstown, but it needs a really big rewrite. And would you be willing to do that? And I said, well, I don't really know much about opera, but give me the play. And I'm like, so what is it going up? And they're like, this summer. I'm like, this summer. And it's literally like, <laughs> and I, I have other things to do. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So. They were like, no, no, it's just going to Williamstown. It'll be fine. You know, you know, da, 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 da. and I was like, now for people who may not know, Williamstown is a pretty big deal yes, when it comes it is a big to, deal. to, when it comes to out of town tryouts or shows that may have a future. And it was, a, it was on their main stage. And I was like, you know, and sometimes in this business talk about opportunity, like, I'm like, huh, that's an interest because it wasn't Broadway bound or anything. And it was just like, Renee's agreed to do this. And, you know, it probably has a future if it's, if it's any good. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. So and I, ha I was busy at other things, but I always juggle products. And we did a reading of the old play with Renee and she was like lovely. And, and the play was just didn't really work and was of another time. And I said, you know, I said, what I would do with this. And I said, say no and get someone else if you want. But what I would do with this is I would turn it into uh, almost like a 1960s Boulevard comedy. It, it, is, it was about a battling couple. One was a maestro and one was an opera singer. And their egos and these two young people they hired to write their autobiographies who they sort of hit against each other. And I, yeah, so I'm like, that's like an old fashioned comedy plot. And, uh, the maestro's larger than life. We can make him funny. 
Renee had only acted in opera. She had never acted in a straight play before. So I said, I can write like a broadly fun character for her to play uh, that I'm sure she'll figure out and da, da, da. So we did that. And so I, I wrote this comedy very quickly. We did a reading of it like around Renee's table and uh, people laughed. It was funny. And then they're like, okay, we're going to do this in Williamstown in like two months. And I was like, <laughs> was this the quickest turnaround oh you've my, ever had? For ridiculous, a- <laughs> ridiculous. Because I'm also, I'm a development guy. So I'm like, okay, can we now do a reading for people so I can hear it in front of an audience and we could see, you know, because I can, I'm the Neil Simon school of rewrites. Like I can rewrite jokes. I, you know, we can, I can get opinions. Yeah, we'll do a reading. And then it was like, oh no, Renee is in Japan singing for the emperor. No, no, Renee, you know, so Renee's schedule, which was very operatic and very international, <laughs> she was not around for these two or three months. And she's lovely. She was great. You know, she was, so they're like, no, no, we'll figure it out in Williamstown, blah, blah, blah. So when we went to Williamstown and I, I had known Doug Sills, who was just, you know, I think one of the theater's certainly funniest people and it needed that. Doug is also not a subtle comic actor, as he will tell you. So, <laughs> And also him being musical, I think, matches well with Renee Fleming, who comes from the music background as well. Absolutely. And we got and we like got uh, it was uh, Justin Long, Anna Klumsky. We got this great cast and we went up to Williamstown and we, you know, we sit in this like tiny, sweaty summer <laughs> rehearsal room. And it's just uh, people always ask me, what's the difference between a play and a musical? And I'm like, in a play, there are much less people in the rehearsal room. Musicals have, you know, rows and rows of people play. You have the, 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 the actors, the stage manager, the director and me. And that, you know, there's one or two other people. So I remember sitting in this room with these like unbelievably talented people and we're reading this play that we really had developed. And I remember thinking like, is this funny? Is any of this work? And we kept having like, um, anytime anyone would walk in the room, it'd be like from the theater. Or like delivering pizza and be like, hey, why don't you sit and watch the scene? Like, cause I really just wanted like reaction from people. And so we kept working on it. And Renee, I think to her credit was like, oh, this isn't what I do, but I'm going to figure this out. And she loved, everyone loved each other, loved the cast. And William sounds so nice up there. And it's even though when you think about it, there's probably a lot of pressure. It, it, you do get this really supportive summary feel there. And Cheetah Rivera was coming in, I think with the visit, must have been the visit like after us. So it was very, this this lovely experience. And I'm like, I'll only write something if I, ha- if I have some connection to it. But I, you know, I also like to do shows for the experience. You know, even Diana was just, there was a, you know, except for the reviews, honestly, it was a great experience. And, and this was too. And then, so we go up the first night, you know, I'm thinking like, I am terrified. We had, you know, good rehearsals and stuff, but like, and Kathleen is great. Kathleen Marshall, and we're good friends and we've worked together and, you know, and what was it about this particular performance that had you jittery? Because no, we'd never done it in front of an audience. We had never done this. We'd only read this play around a table with, you know, someone's <laughs> assistant watching, you know, or Renee's husband or, you know, no one had seen yeah, it. Especially when you're doing a comedy, you need that reaction. Like, what's funny? What's a laugh line? What's not? Exactly. And, you know, William Sally probably gives you two previews, right? Like it gives you, uh, you know, and like, you, you know, the sets being built by interns the night before, you know, so it's just like. But it's not a little theater. It's, as you said, it's very prominent and there's a lot of eyes on it. So, um, I was just terrified because I'm like, is this a whole, like, I don't know. Is this a misfire? I don't know. Uh, and then the show starts and it gets huge laughs throughout. It was really exciting. You know, Kathy and I, I remember us just hugging afterwards because we were like, wow, you know, this, all right, this is going to be a really fun summer's night up here. 
Uh, and then it turns out to be a big hit up there. And um, it's just this, you know, fun, like, like low-key comedy. And then after it's over, the producers say, oh, you know, we have, Renee has agreed to carve out three or four months where she can do the show for 12 weeks on Broadway. And so we're going to try to get a Broadway theater. Uh, and if she doesn't do it now, she can't do it anymore because she has this whole, you know, opera people's ske- schedules are years in advance. So, so was the show really hinging upon Renee Fleming being in it? Yes, because she was the name that they were selling. As, as much as we love Doug and Justin and Anna, it was like, oh, we think Renee's going to sell tickets. But also, you know, it wasn't, Renee was very um, clear that she did not want to sing in the show. She felt that what she has to do to get her voice ready every night, she couldn't do eight times a week in a Broadway setting i think she eventually did in carousel but she was like i i I can't do it every night so we but we did agree to get her to sing a little bit in in the show uh so i think for broadway maybe people came expecting her to sing and she didn't which i understand so (laughs) i was like okay but yeah so and then but then suddenly like we got like what i like to call the last theater available in the spring because i remember it was you know it was the summer and i moved on to other things thinking like oh it was like october i hadn't heard anything November, you know, and then suddenly, you know, I don't know, something doesn't, something closes early, something doesn't, drops out. Uh, but the Schubert's came to see it and they were like, oh, we really like this. We will get you a theater, we think. So Scott Landis, the producer, was like, leave the spring open, leave the spring open. People always tell you that. And it's like, leave the <laughs> for, for any, any show, any region, like, leave it open, leave it. And then when they say that, it usually means we don't ever act together. So anyway, but then sure enough, we get a theater and uh, we're going into um, the Long Acre Theater. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how that's how that came to be. It was a fun ride. It was a big surprise. And yeah. And then, you know, I wish it could have run longer, but it was, it was fun. So with a show like that, are you almost kind of flying by the seat of your pants? And so you don't really have a chance to edit as much as you want? Or did you feel like what finally arrived on Broadway is what you wanted it to be? Uh, I am definitely flying by the suit of my pants on that one. <laughs> and, you know, everyone hired for it is like top notch, like the set's gorgeous and the, the, the act that, you know, the Doug was hilarious in that play. I mean, he was really, really funny in that play. Uh, and those, you know, those folks know how to get laughs. So, yeah. So, so I'm sure if I had more time, I would have been working on it. I would have dug in here and there more. Would it have mattered? I don't know. But, um, so theater, you know, theater is so, live and alive and electric you you just sort of go with it and you, you always feel like I, at least i always feel like oh we're running out of rehearsal i should be rewriting more blah 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 and you know it's just not a science it's an art and you know who knows when the alchemy's right and everything works but i will say i did once i found this, especially we we're going to broadway it'd be Williamstown, like i gave everything i could of myself to the show it wasn't like i was like i don't know this is going to work or not i was just like oh broadway show is gonna get a lot of attention you know uh, I'm going to make this as funny as I can, and hopefully people will, uh, you know, enjoy it. And, you know, comedies are, as we know, a matter of taste. And this was not a dark comedy. It wasn't an edgy comedy. It was really sort of a light throwback comedy. So you sort of are hoping that whatever audiences or critics or whatever you need sort of key into that. But, you know, what's funny to some people isn't funny to other people. And this was really... Yeah, it's so subjective. It's so. Yeah. And this was a show about funny. This was a show about... There, there was a story underneath this battling couple but this was a, a show about funny but you know the audiences were good we're really good for the i mean we're you know certainly seem to be having a good time 
Since you've done as many plays as musicals, do you have an idea when you're first starting on a piece, it needs to be a play or it needs to be a musical or does the show kind of write itself and tell you what it is? Um, It usually writes itself. Every once in a while I have an idea for something and I'm like, oh, I don't know which one or the other, but usually that's pretty clear that Oh, you need, you know, this, this is written for songs. Every once in a while, I, there's a new musical, uh, that a mutual friend of ours, Richard Winkler is, uh, commissioned from me. And it's as a musical. I'm like, Oh, great idea for a musical. In the middle of it, I was like, you know what? I really like where this outline's going. This could also be like a play or a screenplay without music. But so far, and the music's great and the composer's great. I'm so far into it and I love it. But I, every once in a while, I have that. Oh, I could take this story and, you know, yeah. Musicals to me are so much about their story and structure so i oftentimes think oh if you could take you should be able in, in an odd way to take the music out and still have a, a story there you're going to be missing a lot of emotional high points but you should still should have a story what's the usual order of events is it you coming up with the show and presenting it to a producer producers coming to you like richard did it it depends actually um you know, you start out, it's all your ideas and you hope to, uh, break through and get someone to notice and read it and, and produce it. But, uh, you know, if you, once you get a little track record, people sort of come to you a little more. Um, so then it's basically like, do I like this idea? Do I like the person I'm working with? Do I think I can contribute anything to it is a big thing, but I personally prefer to do my own things. Right. They're hard to get up because then you have to go hat in hand. Yeah, you know, trying to get it done, but I personally like doing original uh, material, but I certainly am very happy to take uh, commissions, especially with uh, good people like Richard. When looking at your body of work so far, and obviously you have many years to go, you, you'll be, you'll be, many, yeah, <laughs> hope <so>. right? <laughs> but when you look back at the work that you've done, what do you think is a through line? What's kept you going through those ups and downs? What's kept me going is I absolutely love the process of writing for theater, be they plays or musicals. And I love theater. Uh, I've done very little um, stuff in, uh, hardly any really. I've done some script plays and things I've sold, but nothing that's been made sort of stuff in LA. I, I sort of, uh, since I grew up in Ordell, New Jersey, across from the bridge, I just loved theater and I've always wanted to be a part of it. And I love, I love the writing process as much as the production process, interestingly enough. It's like, I really just love figuring, I constantly try to challenge myself. You know, I'm writing a farce now, which I've never done. And it's so much, it's terrifying because they're really complicated, but they're really mechanical, but you need jokes in them too. So, you know, I, I really try to keep pushing myself. I think I don't write the same show twice. Uh, I try not to write the same show twice, even though I've been offered it once in a while to write like, and I love you, Perfect Not Change sequel and all that stuff. And I've always said, you know, no, <laughs> you know, um, and I love going to theater. I love, and I love all sorts of shows. I love big commercial shows. I love weird shows. I love all sorts of things. So I think it's really the writing process and the people, uh, I get to work with. I think I, I get to work with some really talented people, composers, directors, actors, you know, and, and many of them over and over again. So that, that to me is really inspiring. Would you say that that's your definition of success of making it the fact that you get to work with these people and, and write the shows you've been writing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the nice thing about writing for theater is you can write anything you want. You know, it doesn't mean someone's going to produce it, but you know, unlike televisions, for instance, where you're, you're often given a set of characters or this or that, you know, you really are free to write what you want. And that to me is my, if I had a definition of my success, whatever that, that means, it's really right now I can get up and write whatever I want. Doesn't mean someone's going to do it. Doesn't mean people are going to like it. 
but I get to write whatever I want. And I generally have an, have an idea of what kind of avenue should play. And, you know, I'm happy to work in 99 seat theaters. I'm happy to work in big Broadway theaters. I'm, ha- you know, that's the thing too. I, I just love all types of theater and I love theater people. I love actors, you know, like yourself, people who just, you know, theater is hard work as we know, yeah. you know, eight shows a week is hard. So I have such respect. And whenever, you know, I'm working with actors and I'm thinking like, oh, these folks are like, memorizing my words and wrestling with them and you know <laughs> right. whereas i wrestle with them yeah they're wrestling with each character and taking the character out of the show and giving them backstories and futures and trying to figure things out and i love when actors um teach me stuff about my characters that i don't know that's one of my favorite things too like when they say oh so i think i say this because of this and i'm like oh <laughs> yeah i never thought of that but i love that and so I love that so much. I'm going to rewrite that line to make that make sense. Yeah. So I love that too. <laughs> well, it's an honor for actors like myself to do work like yours. And oh, thank you. So I greatly appreciate you talking about Only Make Believe as well as some of your shows. So I greatly appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. Well, that does it for me, Patrick Oliver Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by John Bartman and Blue Dot Sessions. Why I'll Never Make It is a Win Me Media production and is part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time with Dina Hammerstein as we talk more about her own theatrical journey and the founding of Only Make Believe. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Most enterprises use disparate systems to manage spend. The result? A reactive manual approach. CFOs and controllers, you deserve better. You deserve a unified spend platform from Brex. Brex makes it easy to proactively control spend with cards, spend management, travel, and bill pay in one place. You can create budgets with controls built in, track and adjust in real time to keep teams accountable, and automate compliance to close the books faster. Ready to control your spend with one unified platform? Visit Brex.com.